What is up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? It is the best wrestling podcast on God's green earth. It's a brand new episode of Ringside Rewind, and of course, I am your host, one half of the podcast, Wrestling Tag Team Champions of the World, Chris Rennie, a.k.a. Snaggle J. And of course, as always, with the hot tag, it is my main man, Mr. Chris Dell. What's going on, buddy? Not much. Are we the only podcast not under Conrad Thompson at this point? I listen. Yes. Okay. I believe so. <laughs> at this point, the uh, the Conrad Empire has taken over all of the wrestling podcasts in the world, with the exception of Ringside Rewind. We remain. And we-, we remain the only shoot title in. <laughs> Sorry, I just watched. I just watched BTE. Before uh, before we recorded, and they uh, like six times in the episode they referenced it being the BT Championship being the only shoot title. So there's there's why I use that reference. Um, I was gonna say too, but we fit under Conrad's circle because we too are an ad free show. That is, we are very much an ad free show. I mean, other than the random hashtag ads we drop that are not real ads and things that you can't buy. Um, yeah, we're completely 100% ad-free and available to the world Wednesdays at, I think it goes live at like 4 a.m. Eastern time, but like that's neither here nor there. Wednesdays, every other Wednesday, hot, ad-free. And we've got a brand new hot, ad-free show for you this week. We're well, going I don't know if I want to say, on the weekend as well, we have the that's rebound right. with the latest news and that, and that goes... Usually Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, but at some point on the weekend, you will get a rebound in your uh, ringside rewind feed. That's right. All kinds of hot wrestling podcast action coming at you, hard, hot, and heavy. Speaking of coming out hard, hot, hard, and heavy, this week we're taking a look. At Cowboy Bill Watts's time in charge of WCW, it's going to be an absolute, I want to say hoot, but hoot often implies something good. And I don't know if there's a whole hell of a lot good that came from Bill Watts's tenure in WCW. But before we get to that, as we record this, we are a little less than 24 hours after the conclusion of AEW's Double or Nothing 2022 event. And we're going to chat a little bit about it. So, Chris, kick it off. Listen, Double or Nothing, I'll admit, this is probably the least excited I've been for an AEW pay-per-view in some time. I was kind of along the same way. There were a lot of matches that interested me, but as a whole... Um, I wasn't all that hot going into it. I think part of that reason was because it's a Sunday night. They said they were going to go late. They were trying to counter-program the NBA Eastern Conference Final, uh, which was going into Game 7 last night. So it was going to be a long show. And they it was a long show. Like It didn't go off the air until about... 130 Atlantic, I would say. And that's way too late for me. Like, you know, I, I have a hard time at when it's the 1230 
stop. Like I'm an old man now, in case you haven't been able to tell. Uh, but I, uh, it, uh, it delivered. It was a four and a half hour show uh, when I watched it this morning. Uh, and it flew by. Like I enjoyed this show a lot. And uh, there was so much on it. I, there was something in every match that I enjoyed. Well, let's go through and we'll talk about some thumbs ups and thumbs downs. Maybe the best way to go about it in no particular order. I do agree. A lot happening here. Um, I will admit I did not come away like with the super warm, fuzzy feeling that I normally have after an AEW pay-per-view. Um, but I do think, I think the biggest problem for me going into this was, and this is, I hate to say this out loud, but man, it, this, it was, it's a WWE problem. They're just, there's so much going on, but none of it is like super exciting. Like, yes, you, you had the Owen Hart cup, you have, you know, page and punk, you have the, the tag team triangle match. You have the anarchy in an arena. Um, you have the House of Black Death Triangle stuff. There's the TBS Championship. You got Young Bucks and the Hardys. MJF Wardlow. You have all that stuff happening. But, like, are were any of those really presented as, like, the hook, pun intended, of needing to buy this pay-per-view? Like, I feel like what they did was they used this pay-per-view to sort of, well, I don't want to say sort of change a lot of things up and sort of be like setting up what the next, you know, six months to a year is going to be because most of the titles didn't change hands. But I just feel like this was a good transitional show. And now I'm hoping we get back into some of the really good build and storytelling that AEW has been really good at uh, you know, in their short-term existence. I feel like a lot of this to me felt thrown together. And I know, you know, like the main event page of punk was billed for months, but I still, it still feels thrown together. It didn't feel at the time like it was the most necessary thing for them to do. Um, but I think it was a good show. I think overall it was really good for me. One of my first, uh, thumbs up things was uh how they handled the owen hart stuff um whether you agree or disagree with adam cole and Britt baker being a couple and also being victorious um you know the whole thing was put on with a really good show of class um i, I enjoyed the whole thing i do hope this becomes a a yearly thing i don't really think dr Britt baker needed it adam cole desperately needed it um, if it's something that they're going to like book off of, but I just think the whole thing from start to finish was really well done. It was a really good way to utilize Owen's name and put it towards something that was respectful and made sense. Uh, definite couple of big thumbs ups for me on the Owen Hart tournament stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. I'm not a huge fan. I would have rather see Ruby Soho take the women's 100%. one. She needed um, it way more than Dr. Britt Baker needed. I'm okay with Adam Cole winning uh, on that because he's a heel, but he's not a heel that I would see as disrespectful to winning it for the first time. Yeah. Um, 
And I think that was part of the thing, too, that you talked about where it felt like things were thrown together. Uh, for the past month or six weeks or so, they've had to have two or three matches on television between Dynamite and Rampage that were not storyline-based. So it, that will take some time out of what they can do to throw together matches yeah. for the pay-per-view. And the next month is going to be like the same thing as well because we're going into Forbidden Door which is the uh, New Japan uh, AEW show that's coming up on the 26th of June. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be seeing that as well. So while I, I do agree with your thumbs up, my first thumbs up was uh, to the Wardlow opening the match against MJF, whose favorite vegetable is now squash. Yeah. And I there's mean, a whole other story behind yeah. what's going on with MJF. And I don't think like we could go into that, but that's going to be an hour onto its own. Well, so here, so then let's, let's, I mean, anybody who's anybody in the wrestling community knows what's going on with the whole MJF stuff. But I guess the one point, let, let's talk about it in terms of the event. Do you think this was always the match that was intended to be? Or do you think this match occurs because of MJF's behavior in the 36 hours leading up to this event? No, this was definitely a change. I can't see this match going on first. Um, if it is the normal goings on like this, I see this as something they're kind of building through the night. Um I think it's probably a little bit more of a hit the monster, run away from the monster for MJF. But it like the what he's done over the past 24 to 36 hours with his ru running away from AEW. And apparently he showed up early or showed up late to the building just before showtime, left directly after his match. And of course, with it being MJF, there is always the question mark of how much is real and how much is not. But Tony Khan didn't talk about it last night on the uh, after Double or Nothing press availability. Um, I I think we would have seen a little bit more than seven and a half minutes, which was pretty close to the shortest match on the actual card. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think... Um... I think there was definitely a change. I think, again, you know, MJF eating 10 power bombs. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that was fully intended uh, to be what it was, but it is what it is. Um, I have to give a thumbs down to the Hardys and the Young Bucks. And I'm not doing it because of the rampant speculation that something was messed up with Jeff Hardy. Um, Yes, Jeff Hardy looked sluggish and did not have a great match, but for as much as they hyped this match, it did not come anywhere near close to delivering. Um, and you have to think, as much as they are heels now, you would have to think the Young Bucks are extremely disappointed with how this match went, um, knowing that the Hardys are idols of theirs. This was a chance for them. You know, it's not often that you get to quote unquote wrestle your heroes um, with the, your heroes still being, you know, somewhat competent enough to wrestle. This match was a disaster. Uh, there were several moments in the match 
where I grimaced thinking that this that someone needs to stop this before somebody gets hurt. Um, it was not good. It was not a good match. It was not a good look. Um, whatever the circumstances were that led up to that, this was easily the worst match on the card um, and easily the biggest letdown on the card. I'm going to give a thumbs in the middle to Jade Cargill and Anna Jay. Um, I just don't... I like Anna Jay. I think Jade Cargill's going to be a star. I think this match is going to be much better in a year. Uh, but I'm going to give a thumbs up to the run-ins surrounding the match, mm. especially Stokesley Hathaway. I am... Over the moon that AEW has picked him up. Uh, he is going, he's money and how WWE missed on him. Of course, WWE doesn't like managers. So there it is right there. Uh, but him coming in and then Athena coming in after yeah. that, the former Ember Moon, uh, those two coming in separately as uh, Stokesy has taken on Jade Cargill after Smart Mark has gotten been taken out. Uh, and then Athena coming in as well. Those get a big thumbs up from me. Yeah, I agree. A couple of huge moves. I think uh, two relatively no-brainer acquisitions. Uh, again, I know the the um, the WWE fanboys are all like, oh, just more WWE cast-up. No, these two are perfect fits for AEW. Um, again, I think AEW's use of, let's call it ringside personnel, uh, has been good, really good. Again, you know, most people hate smart Mark Sterling. That's the point. Um, I, again, you know, Jade Cargill obviously still needs a big ringside presence. She is still very, very green in the wrestling industry. Um, you know, and I, I think, yeah, I, I think it's a great choice. I think Athena's going to do great stuff. I think it was time for them to sort of give a, a shot to the women's division a little bit. I don't think Tony Storm had the impact that a lot of people thought she would right away. But again, I also think the again the the women's division's been kind of jumbled up because of the whole Owen Hart um Owen Hart Cup uh, as well. Um two other things I want to talk about real quick. Um I do uh, obviously, for me, match of the night was the uh, Anarchy in Arena match, um, and I don't think it was particularly close. No. Um, and I, and I, to be honest, that surprised me because I expected this match to suck ass. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am not a fan of the giant schmazes that seem to have happened at every AEW event, Stadium Stampede, Blood and Guts. Like, it's, they're not usually very good they're usually chaotic hectic and usually are have a poorly booked finish this was not any of that this was extremely exciting again i've been very open on the podcast i'm not a huge fan of the violence and the blood and stuff but in this situation it was done so well um i don't know if i agree 100 with jericho appreciation society picking up the win i guess you know hindsight will be what it is when the, this whole thing's done playing out but that match was absolutely phenomenal the last thing i want to mention is and i'm going to propose this to you as more of a question do you think 
putting the AEW World Heavyweight Championship on CM Punk was the right decision. 100%. I could not agree more. Do you have any supporting evidence as to why? I CM Punk is a at this point a bigger mainstream name than pretty much anybody on the roster. Um especially with the merging of Time Warner and Discovery having somebody that's front of the marquee name being the champion is going to help uh putting AEW stars on their platforms. Uh, also, he can still bring it in the ring. He can be a face. He can be a heel. And I don't know if you've seen or not, but after the pay-per-view went off air last night, yep. he was joined in the ring by your friends and mine, FTR. I did see that. So, so that's... I think this was 100% the only decision. I know I've seen a lot of people saying that, oh, they, they, they've given up on Hangman, blah, 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 blah. To be honest, as soon as it became apparent that Kenny Omega was going to be out for an extended period of time, the days on a Hangman Adam Page's title reign were numbered. Because you think to the effort of the journey that he had to go on, to oh, we, we, and we talked about it, at length on this podcast, the journey of Hangman Adam Page and Kenny Omega and the transition that occurred. The only logical thing to happen coming out of that would be a return match with Kenny Omega, which became evident immediately was not going to be possible. And a lot of people will point to Hangman's what is it 180 day or whatever it was 120 day One, or so 178 i think they said something like that week. it was about a half year run some people will point to it and say oh my gee it was n- it was not good i don't think it was bad i just think that the most logical thing that could have happened with it wasn't possible if you could not have kenny come back to try to avenge the loss which i think would have led to another um pay-per-view main event um, absolute banger. There was really nowhere left for him to go. And I think right now, you know, after six months, Paige was kind of just kind of floating in the water. He'll be back. This will not be Hangman Adam Page's only run with the world championship. Absolutely no shot. But I just think, you know, I, 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 I think coming out of that long, multi-year build obviously there was going to be some letdown and i still think you needed something with kenny to keep that fire going a bit longer so now you're going to transition to punk we're going to get the summer of punk again that we all really wanted um and because of the versatility of cm punk there's literally 90 ways you can go with this um, it's going to be really interesting to see on Dynamite if they immediately move to something, if they leave a little bit of a honeymoon phase, are we going to have an eliminator tournament to determine a number one contender? Is it going to be somebody like Danielson or Moxley or one of those guys step right up? 
Uh, could it be Eddie? Um, you know, we know Eddie and Punk have had some some history recently. Um, on AEW television, I mean. But yeah, and now you know again you you um if if you watched or paid attention to the the post event media availability, I mean, Tony Khan went off on Eric Bischoff. Yeah, I saw that. It was, and you know, here's the thing. Now, and rightfully so. I am not a fan generally of when Eric Bischoff opens his mouth. I enjoy his podcast when it's based on actually what happened and facts around the time of 1995 to 2000, you know, or even in his earlier run in WWE. I enjoy when he's talking about that. I do not enjoy listening to Eric Bischoff talk about current wrestling because he's out of touch. Cornette is out of touch. These guys have no clue how the world works in 2022. And for, for, for Bischoff to say, oh, he's been a financial flop. Tony Khan to say, hey, listen, Punk's been here for four pay-per-views. They've all been record buys for us. The gates are up. The money's up. People are coming. Like, I don't know what the hell this guy's talking about. He used much less nicer words than I did. Oh, did he ever? But, but again, I just think you now have a new champion minted and rooted in something that is going to create hot takes all around the internet. I can't wait to see Bishop respond to the comments from the, the, he may have already, I haven't gone out of my way to look it up, but now you have this champion who has been in the news, in the wrestling community is beloved in the wrestling community can go heel, can go face. It opens up so many options for them. You know, now you're going to have a, a redemption angle sort of with Paige. Um, I do hate the fact that we have this New Japan show on the horizon because it's going to be. Careful. I mean, Careful. Oh, I don't hate the concept. I hate it in storyline planning because nothing out of this show is going to have any impact on AEW storylines, I don't think. So essentially, it's like doing a Saudi show for WWE, right? Where they I mean, and WWE have tried to make Saudi shows be canon, quote unquote, in terms of storyline. But like, like again, I'm I'm very excited for the New Japan event. I am not excited for what it's going to do for all these throwaway Survivor Series esque storylines that don't matter. In but, comparison to Double or Nothing, I am buying the Forbidden Door pay per view tomorrow. I, without a match scheduled, or a match announced, or anything, oh, I'm, hitting, oh, I'm hitting the button on fight tomorrow. A hundred percent. So, a hundred percent. I'm definitely going to buy it. Definitely going to watch it. I think it's going to be great. But I mean, just in terms of getting back to some hardcore AEW storytelling, I'd like to see them settle down a little bit. Let's get some things going. Let's move away. Let's get Sammy Guevara the hell off TV for a little while. Um, I'm sick of that crap. Um, but to wrap it up, Chris, double or not? I got okay. I got oh. three. I got three bullet points. Not even yeah. thumbs up and thumbs down. Go. One about the Aronicky in the arena match. I saw people on Twitter complaining about the production of that match, camera wise, and that. Somebody, as somebody who has worked both in front of the camera and behind the scenes, both in television production for things outside of wrestling and on camera for wrestling 
They did an absolute bang up job. You were not going to catch everything. They ran a live shoot in four or five portions of the arena live one time all at the same time. AEW has amazing production in this case. Could you imagine the mess Kevin Dunn would have made of that? I well, I wouldn't have been able to watch it. No, because it, they would Dunn, camera cut every 0.3 seconds. Uh number 2, Keith Lee and Swerve Strickland will be AEW Tag Team Champions. And number three, winning the TNT title in the next year between now and next year's Double or Nothing will be, as a babyface, all ego Ethan Page. Oh, I thought you were going to say Kyle O'Reilly. I mean, I don't disagree with all ego Ethan Page either, but I thought I thought you were going to say Kyle O'Reilly. And not because my mouse was over his name on my Double or Nothing match beat. Listen, that was a great match last night too. It was. Like to, like we could do it whole show. Like I seriously I thought about asking you earlier before we taped, did we want to push Cowboy Watts and just do a double or nothing show? Well, Cuz there's enough there where we could have done it. I know. Well, opportunity missed. Maybe next yes. time. Um so before we wrap up double nothing 2022. Overall, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. I will I, I will, I'll even take the heat and I'll go first. Uh, I gotta say thumbs up, but I could if I if I left it long enough, I might be persuaded thumbs in the middle. Um, I think it was a bit a, a bit of a notch down from what we normally expect from AEW pay-per-views. Again, 13 matches, including the one match on the pre-show. That's a hell of a lot of time. Um, I understand again, you're trying to compete against game seven, but holy hell, um, it was a slog. Um, not all, you know, I know you get the Owen Hart there. You want all the belts on there. You get to do with the MJF stuff. You're trying to wrap up the, uh, the men of the year and Paige Van Zandt to get her debut. Uh, I get all that, but I think I'm teetering on thumbs in the middle, but I will go thumbs up because. Overall, I think there was more positives than negatives. Uh, I am a thumbs up. There was everything, everything on this show had something I liked. And like I said, it went by in a blink of an eye. You gave, so it, a, I, you gave it a thumbs up the minute Hook came out on the pre-show. I Listen, I, I didn't watch the show last night, but I did watch the pre-show. And between Hook and Danhausen, I'll tell you what, I am looking at Elkhausen t-shirts. Oh, my jumping Jesus priest. Well, listen. Hey, since we're both ordering uh, Forbidden Door, maybe we do a uh, watch-along on Twitch. We might have to do something. Yeah, well, thank Well, so now let's move from the best of times to, well, let's just say the not best of times. (laughs) We're taking a look at Cowboy Bill Watts' time in WCW. And listen, I will preface this by saying it's not great. But we're in a transitional time in WCW. WCW is still a relatively new entity trying to, you know, reformat its brand after rebranding from Jim Crockett Promotions and the acquisition from Turner. Chris, what do we tell us the story of Cowboy Bill Watts? 
Well, Cowboy Bill Watts, he started as a pro wrestler in the 60s, working his way through the territory, spent a lot of time in San Francisco, Chicago, St. Louis, and was in Japan for All Japan Pro Wrestling. He faced Bruno Sammartino in the WWF and also challenged for the NWA and AWA world titles in the 60s and 70s. But where he's most famous is a as an owner of a territory and a booker. Uh, in 1979, he bought into the Tri-State Wrestling Territory, a territory owned at that point by Leroy McGurk, promoting Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Mississippi, renamed it Mid-South Wrestling. It began to expand in the mid-80s, eventually getting invited by Ted Turner to air on Superstation TBS as an alternative to WWF, which had taken over the traditional wrestling time slot of 6.05 Eastern on Saturday evenings by purchasing Georgia Championship Wrestling, resulting in what had been called Black Saturday. Are you familiar with Black Saturday? Uh, yes, because I believe you've told me about it before. Okay. Short, long story short, uh, the Briscoe brothers, not the ROH guys, the older uh, Briscoe brothers, uh, had their shares in Georgia Championship Wrestling, sold them to Vince McMahon, who then, as part of that deal, got the ownership of Georgia Championship Wrestling, including the 605 spot. Uh, now, Turner was angry that WWF went back on a promise to feature matches and promos from the TBS studios, showing mostly reruns from other WWF TV shows. Uh, I've seen tape of that time, and the highlights were a George the Animal Steel squash match and Ivan Putski taking on Sam Houston. That's pretty hot uh yeah mid-south wrestling became the highest rated show on tbs positioning mid-south to take over the 605 spot when turner forced wwf off his network before that could happen jim barnett brokered a deal to have jim Car jim crockett buy the saturday time slot for one million dollars wwf used that money to fund wrestlemania That's and right. then they they were off and running in the national expansion that's right. That's abs. Again, no matter how many times you, you hear that story, you just think of how. I mean, for lack of a better pun, how cowboy the wrestling industry was back in those days. I think everybody just played for so long, just tried to stay to their corners and mind their own business and try to all coexist in their different territories and the different states that they, they operated in. And then Vince just kind of blew all that up. And well, if you didn't stay really to your... just well, and Vince really just wanted to do whatever it took to become the biggest wrestling promotion in the world. If you didn't stay in your territory, you there was a very good chance that you may come to some harm. Jim Ross tells a story about being at the NWA uh, convention one year and being in the men's room in a stall, and all of a sudden. Uh, there's three or four guys whose voices, he never says whose the names were, but three or four voices that he recognized uh, talking about how they were going to find someone to shoot Junior because he was going national while the NWA uh, territories were trying to stay alive. Yeah, it's crazy how the world used to work. Like to think of how... Um... The analogy I always use, and I know we're going to get off topic here for a second, but the analogy I, I, I always compare to is I watched a, a um, 
video about some NES games the other day, Super Mario World, uh, I believe. By the way, cheap plug. If you guys have never watched The Gaming Historian on YouTube, I definitely recommend it. But in those days, and this similar time frame, right, late 80s, nobody in America had any idea what was going on in Japan. There was very little news coverage. Like, could you imagine that now? That, uh, like, something, a game that came out in Japan that would not come out in the Americas for 18 months, and we really had no idea? The whole, the parable between it is, everybody was just trying to exist in the ecosystem that they had. Nobody was looking to push the boundaries of what they had because, hey, I've got this little area. It works. I share my guys with somebody because of this alliance. It's great. Flair comes down three times a year. It's wonderful. I'm making just enough money to get by. And then Vince is like, you know what? I want everything. I want it all. I want all the territories. I want to be the biggest wrestling promotion in the world. And then you see just the scrambling that it caused in the late 80s. Um, something we'll never, ever see again. Oh, no, never. And I mean, you would see guys in the territories, like if if Vince Sr. wanted somebody, and I in researching this episode, I, I watched or listened to the Bill Watts shoot interview that he did. And he tells the story of if Vince Sr. wanted somebody from you, and the, the example he gave was Waldo Von Erich. He wanted to bring Waldo Von Erich up to face Bruno San Martino in the garden for two or three months. And so Vince Sr. would call Bill and say, Bill, I'd like Waldo. Can you make him available to me? Now, the money in New York, even at that time, was huge compared to what you would make in the territories. And one way or another, Waldo was going to New York. So Bill would say, of course, Vince, that's no problem. What date do you need him for? I'll make sure he's all wrapped up here. That's great, Bill. I'll give you an extra week on Andre. Because at that point, Andre was not, Andre the Giant was not just in the New York territory. He was traveling towards all the territories being booked through New York. So if you got on Vince Sr.'s good side, and you could get Andre for, say, two weeks instead of one week or three weeks instead of two weeks, that was an extra week of sellouts. Because one thing you have to remember about the difference between then and now is that these territories ran the same cities and towns every week. So you would be building two shows one week after another to come back and we want to get you to come back the next week. So that's how they would make that work. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. I mean, it's just the way the wrestling business worked at those times. Uh, Watts uh, has, Oh, go ahead. No, 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 no. Go ahead. I say Watts has decided that he wanted to try and go national anyway, after uh, relaunching his business as the universal universal wrestling federation. And he secured two one hour weekly TV programs the Universal Wrestling Federation show, and Power Pro in major markets across the United States. As best it could do was being a number four behind AWA, NWA, and WWF. The final nail in the coffin was when Oklahoma fell into a recession 
with the falling of oil prices. Uh, Watts tells a story about finding out how bad it was when his advance man uh, went to New Orleans and called Bill and said, Bill, there's no sex workers on the streets in New Orleans. And Bill said, what's that matter to me? He said, no, you don't understand. That means there's no money in New Orleans if they if they're not even working here. Yeah. So Watts sold the UWF to Jim Crockett on April 9th, 1987. The next time we hear from the cowboy in the wrestling business is when Bill Watts was hired as Turner Broadcasting's vice president of wrestling operations, taking control of all aspects of the wrestling side of world championship wrestling. The name that Jim Crockett Promotions was changed to when it was purchased by Turner Broadcasting. One of the major things Watts was charged with turning around was the house show business as they had major issues with no shows and having subpar matches. Watts made sure to let wrestlers know that top effort was expected every night. No shows would not be tolerated with a $2,500 fine. Arriving late was a $1,000 fine for the first offense and $25 for the second. When it came to things like car troubles or airplane delays, Watts was known to say, should have fixed it before you left, or I can't find the airline, so I'll find you. You should have left earlier. If you, or as much as I'm going to find you, you could have bought a new car instead of a rental. <laughs> I mean, so just for context, right, $2,500 in 1988 is about $6,100 now, which doesn't sound like a lot. But when you consider the money that a lot of these guys were making at the time, $2,500 was a lot of money. For yeah, we're no, going to get in for no show. Yeah, we're going to get into the details of some of the money stuff. But, like, just, you know, as we go through this, you're going to see kind of how bad this was. But, again, to come in right off the hop and be like, hey, here's what we're doing. Find this. Find that. Uh, get a better car. Should have fixed it yourself. What a hurt. Like, just, you know, it's not going to breed an environment where uh, things are going to go well. <laughs> yeah, no, and this started in, it's, he started in 1992 at, at World Championship Wrestling. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So, but still, like, the, the, the point still stands is that that's, you know, we're going to get into it with Terry Taylor here a little bit later on. But yes. some of the, some of the things that Watts was set to do, and we're going to go through these in, uh, a lot of this stuff has come from some research I've done. Like, I've kind of, I like to know about this stuff. I'm a big fan, as you guys know, of Wrestling Observer. Not so much for the stuff today, but a lot of his history stuff and things that he's researched throughout the year. I mean, or the years, Uncle Dave is, if anything, he is pinpoint when it comes to historical stuff. Right. So, but a lot of this stuff does come from the Wrestling Observer at that time. Uh, now, just some of the things that may have changed from when Watts was in the business before till 1992. Uh, Watts has decided to cut the number of pay-per-view shows down to four and Clash of the Champions down to three. There was an, a September 5th Campus Crush show and the NWA tournament pay-per-view from Tokyo that he had canceled. Uh, WCW wrestlers uh, had received a letter officially listing new rules, most of which had been previously speculated. Uh, Bill Watts appeared at a house show a few weeks ago in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, on June 1st, 
The rules dubbed the Ten Commandments by the wrestlers go as follows. Now, uh, Snaggle, feel free to stop me when you get to something that you feel is completely egregious. Uh, Wrestling. Oh, uh, can I just stop you now? <laughs> Use of the ring barricades and rig post is forbidden and will be cause for an automatic disqualification. Just one. I mean, Wrestling. okay, okay, I get it. Right again, right? Very Ring of Honor ish. I mean, obviously, barricades and ring post bit of a stretch but hey you're trying to create a bit of honor i get it wrestling outside the ring is discouraged again where tv is a very important focus um and you know you want viewing angles and stuff i don't necessarily i mean i disagree with it but i can also understand absolutely no low blows first offense is a thousand dollar fine second offense is a twenty five hundred dollar fine and third offense is a $5,000 fine and will be considered a breach of contract. If a wrestler is hit low, he is to make every effort not to sell the move as a low blow. Stupid. It's wrestling. Like, anyway, that one's, really, re- that one, that one's really dumb. Uh, all wrestlers are due in the building one hour before the scheduled starting time of the show with fines again being implemented, 1000 2500 and 5000 and a breach of contract for the third offense. I mean, you know what? I'll take that one. Yeah. I'm okay with that one. Call time, actually, I think one hour before the show is a little late for a call time myself, but, you know, it's the way it goes. It is what it is. Yeah. Missing an event except in the case of the most severe injuries is considered a breach of contract. The only excusable exception to this rule is an act of God. Yeah, I mean, again, just dumb. Uh, Wrestlers who are injured and can't perform are still expected to make the town in order to show the fans that WCW will no longer falsely advertise talent. The only exception would be a crippling injury, which doesn't allow for traveling. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Talking over the PA during the show is to be discouraged. Lewd hand gestures are prohibited as is any cursing loud enough for the audience to hear. I mean, you're trying to make it family friendly. Okay, I get it. Fratner, oh wow, fraternization. I didn't say that right at all. Between heels and baby faces in public is not acceptable. This includes traveling together to and from the arenas, to public, public appearances, restaurants, and even to the gym. This also includes faces and heels socializing together in social situations and the gym. I believe WWF had the exact same rule at the time, so really not that ludicrous. No guests are allowed in the dressing room, including family members, media, etc. Ridiculous, but whatever. Each wrestler is only allowed two comp tickets to each show for friends and family. Any number of tickets above that number must be purchased at face value by the wrestler. I have very little opinion on that one because it's business. Um, seems kind of low. Seems kind of very chiselerish. Um, um, but but yeah. Business, right? It's business. It's not. It's not as if WCW tickets were hard to come by at that point. Yeah, exactly. That's my thing. They weren't selling out these shows, so like, whatever. Give the give the tickets to the guys. Let them put a few extra butts in the seats. People who are going to be excited, make the shows look full on TV. But you know what? It's business. Business is business. There's some Saturday night tapings that they would be lucky to have friends and family in the. Uh, yeah, exactly. In the in the crowd. Yeah. And I mean, when it comes like shows I've worked like that, you don't get complimentary tickets. You know what I mean? Everybody. Now, that being said, you know, there is 
like there were a few times that I went that I took my brother with me and my brother came to the show yep. with me and he got in, you know, and like stuff like that. Like if I was yep. still doing shows, I'd say, Hey, Snaggle, come on, let's do a show. You come in with me like that kind of stuff. So overall, I mean, these rules are, are not like super duper egregious, but again, as a package, it just shows the mentality that Bill Watts had, right? He's going to like, I'm going to come in here. Uh, everything's going to be on the up and up. You're not going to do this. You're not going to do that. Like, it's really just micromanaging and doing it with threats of fines and punishment. Like just again, doesn't matter what era it's in. This is not how you come in to try to manage a place that is trying to create a positive business environment. I just, I don't get it. He uh, is going to cut back on the length of television tapings because he believes it burns out the fans and hurts the return gates in those cities. So the days of 25 match television tapings are done. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, yeah, you know, 25 match television taping. And remember, this is back in the day when there wasn't a Monday Night Raw. There wasn't a Nitro or anything no. like that. It was WCW Saturday night, and it was basically all squash matches. Yeah. And, and there are some syndicated in there, too. Now, what is the most controversial new directive? And we'll get to this in a few minutes a little bit more uh, in-depthly, but... Watts has banned everything off the top rope. Wrestling, man. I mean. Uh. At this time, WCW was ha had a light heavyweight division and was including Jushin Thunder Liger, one of the best light heavyweights in the world at the time, who used a lot of off the top rope moves. And and do you know why they were doing that? Tell me why. Because it differentiated their product from the WWF, who was not doing anything with anyone under a super heavyweight. They Everything they were doing was big, heavy, muscly, like slow, prodding, bad matches, like... They were they were building a different product. This again, this is the most this is the most egregious thing, because all of those other things, whether you agree with them or you disagree with them, you can make a case that it is a smart business directive. Again, I disagree with a lot of them, but you can at least make a somewhat coherent argument that limiting comp tickets and not wrestling on the floor and blah 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 are smart business decisions. You, but this is the one thing that really gave them an edge over the WWF was if you wanted to see more exciting, fast-paced, high-flying wrestling, WCW was able to provide that. And then you say, no top rope. That right there should have been for anyone in WCW with a business oriented position that should have been a fireable offense at that time, at that place, at the state of the product, that should have been a fireable offense. Watts co-hosted the WCW Saturday, Saturday night show that aired on June 13th for claiming the beginning of a new era. Cause that always works out for WCW, the real deal. Watts called the WWF uh, a, oh, I can never say this word, macabre, macabre. 
Thank you. Cartoon. It said WCW wouldn't be having people throw up or be electrocuted in reference to recent angles with the Ultimate Warrior and Sergeant Slaughter. Although pro wrestling's most famous electrocution was at WCW's Halloween Havoc show in 91 with Abdullah the Butcher. The padding on the floor was eliminated, although in many states it will be kept because of commission rules, with Watts saying something to the effect that real wrestlers don't need a bunch of mattresses to fall onto. <laughs> in an attempt to push uh. Atlantis Omni as the new Madison Square Garden of Wrestling, WCW had two title changes on the July 5th house show, with Brad Armstrong beating Scotty Flamingo to win the light heavyweight title, Terry Gordy and Steve Williams beating the Steiner brothers to capture the WCW tag titles. Both matches, along with a few others, were filmed in a single camera setup and will air on TBS. The move to push the Omni shows was exemplified on the TBS shows this weekend since both national shows heavily pushed the Sunday night card at the Omni with all angles and commentary designed to push those matches at the expense of no hype, no angles, and virtually no commentary devoted to the July 12th pay-per-view show. Only a tiny percentage of the audience watching nationally on TBS lived within a one-hour drive of the Omni and could even attend the show, where roughly 30% of those watching these shows have pay-per-view capability and could, if they wanted to, order the Great American Bash. Even with all the hype, the Omni crowd was approximately 2,500 people and $25,000, roughly the same as the previous card. Yeah, I mean, again, just right off the bat, poor business decisions. You can't alienate your pay-per-view base. Again, this shows me that Bill Watts has no idea what he's doing. Um, this, These last couple things, right, with... You know, removing the mats in states that would allow, why? What difference does it make? Um, you're not allowing people to wrestle out there, but in the odd chance that they do, maybe let's have some, you know, safety out there to protect them a little bit. And then this whole thing with, again, basically undercutting the pay-per-views and stuff, like, again, it's just, it's moving pieces around the board with no real strategy on how you're trying to achieve the result that you want. It's change for the sake of change sake. That's what Bill Watts, you know, and again, we're going to get into some of the things later in terms of his personal character and stuff that will explain a lot what somehow these decisions were made. But this, this is just, it's not good. It's not taking the company in a right direction. So literally have your first events out of the gate be pushed around these events at the Omni and then see absolutely no, no benefit from that. I mean, it just doesn't work. Watts has now banned baby faces and heels from flying on the same airplane, which in some cases has made a tougher travel schedule that much tougher with the faces and heels alternating weeks in having to take the early flights out of town after wrestling the previous night. The reason given wasn't kayfabe, as much as the fear that if everybody was on the same plane and it went down, there would be nobody left to wrestle. So now the billion to one odds of that happening are doubled. Yeah. Again, I, on one hand, 
you can understand trying to protect kayfabe and keep faces and heels away from each other and blah 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 but in 1992 but i mean here's the thing when you're trying to implement all these policies around timeliness and lightly injured superstars making or wrestlers making the towns and all of this stuff and if the reason being you're worried about a plane going down I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Like, yes, I, again, we're still very much in the era of, you know, good guys and bad guys, and everybody believes that wrestling is real. But, like, have some sense, man. <laughs> like, have, just make, again, this certain decisions are what they are, but let's have them rooted in a little bit of sense. The new po- there's a new policy for turning off house lights for television, creating the dark arena so they don't need to pad the buildings or promote extra hold for television tapings to have a decent crowd so it won't be visible. While it will make the product look different from WWF, something this group is desperately striving to do at every turn, different in some cases will look worse to the casual fan at home. Just note as well, AEW has just gone back and forth on this where for a while they had lit up the crowd very bright and then have taken, took it down. They're now back to relighting the crowd. Yeah. I mean, it's all aesthetically pleasing in certain ways. Right. So it is what it is. I, I, I I get both sides of it for sure. The next little bit here is really one of the best parts of Bill Watts run. I think. Uh, And I like I WCW was seen here in Canada at this point. We had had access to TBS. So I was watching WCW in this time frame and remember this. And it was a heck of a a, a goings on at this point. Ron Simmons captured the WCW World Heavyweight title on August 2nd in Baltimore by pinning Big Van Vader in 946 at the Worldwide Wrestling Television Taping with a Power Slam. The match was said to have been very good. It, along with the angle that debuted Jake Roberts, aired uh, will air on TBS. Vader had been advertised to defend the title against Sting on Sunday night's card. However, earlier in the taping, an angle was set up where Roberts came out of the audience and gave Sting two DDTs on a chair. Sting did a stretcher, uh, stretcher job and was unable to wrestle in the main event. Bill Watts and Grizzly Smith, Jake's dad, came out with the top seven contenders. Unfortunately, this crew didn't include U.S. champion Rick Rude, TV champ Steve Austin, but instead had Dan Spivey, Van Hammer, Simmons, Barbarian, Cactus Jack, and Dustin Rhodes, and announced they had their names in a bowl, and Smith was to pick out the contender. Rude came down to demand his name be put in as well, but they picked out Simmons' name to get the title shot, WCW held a legit press conference at CNN Center on Tuesday afternoon, introducing Simmons as the new champion. There you go. The high watermark of Bill Watts' tenure um, as uh, running the show WCW is Ron Simmons becoming the first African-American world heavyweight champion in wrestling. Um, You love to see it. I mean, it made, made his career 
uh, a career that lasted a very, very long time. I mean, the guy was a football All-American, um, had a great, long, fun wrestling career, you know, would go on to do some really fun stuff as part of the APA in WWE. Um, yeah. Sad that it's probably the only good thing that comes out of his run, but nonetheless, uh, he made one good decision over the course of his um, thing. Now it's time to go back into the uh, into the bad side. Well, we're going to talk about uh, the bad part of it here. Uh, Mike Mooneyham's column in the August 2nd Charleston, South Carolina Post-Courier detailed morale problems with WCW, or morale problems with Bill Watson WCW. Uh, the column has stated that several WCW performers, speaking on a condition of anonymity, say morale has reached a new low. Uh, one high-profile WCW personality says nobody's being paranoid, but everyone knows this guy, Watts, is not going to pay. We've come to this after so many years of on-air talent and wrestling personalities considered nothing more than a wrestler, with that great mystique of having a broke-down body living in a trailer talking about the good old days. We finally progressed without unions, without representation, without holdouts, but through professionalism. Finally, Turner Broadcasting has brought respect to its on-air personalities, and we've progressed from being wrestlers to being on-air personalities. In essence, performers, sports entertainers. One source says he foresees many of the company's top stars fleeing to the WWF once their contracts are up. Watts has made it clear that the big buck guaranteed contracts that have been doled out in recent years will be replaced by unguaranteed incentive-based contracts. Vince McMahon doesn't guarantee money, but he treats his talent fairly and with respect. While some people don't appreciate all the gimmicks in his organization, he does treat his wrestlers like a businessman. Watts wants everyone to go back to the old format. One reason why nobody pushed for a union is that things were progressing at a low but sure pace. Now, that's all being thrown out the window. These guys have families, said the source. And one of the reasons they're here is because of guaranteed money. Terry Taylor has a family. He was making $3,000 a week. He's spending 30% of that on taxes. And out of the rest... He's spending $75,000 a year on the road. He's not staying in suites with the jacuzzis. That's $75,000 in business expenses to live on the road. And Watts takes him off contract. In the meantime, he can't take independent dates either because he's afraid he'll have a WCW booking and have to cancel at the last minute or he'll get fired for accepting independent dates. Since the article was printed, Taylor was let go and not offered $300 per night to work on an unspecified schedule. Watts is going to have to hope that the Dick Slaters, Barbarians, Steve Williams, and Terry Gordy's will do the jobs because st the Stings, Steiners, Terry Taylors, Roods, and Austins will not stay under these conditions. Your comments. I mean, not wrong. Here's the thing. So... Uh, you know, a lot of times we get rooted in the in the fantasy that wrestling is and, and the wrestling industry is, but at the bare minimum of it, it is a business that has employees or contractors, depending on what era and what form you're looking at. Anytime you make a change, 
to the money that your performers, your employees, your contractors are making for the worse, it's not going to go well for your business. Um, the, and again, you know, at this point, early 90s, you know, the wrestling industry is doing okay. Um, obviously WCW is not floundering. I don't think it's super crazily successful either, but you know, this is everybody wants to point at the financial mismanagement of the later part of the nineties and and wrap it into sort of the downfall of WCW. This early nineties stuff where they're going the opposite, where he's trying to, in his mind, I'm sure it was correcting some of the mistakes that he felt previous ownership and previous leadership had made, giving out these big guaranteed contracts. But like whether it was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, anytime you drastically cut the earning ability of your employees it's not going to end well and when you listen when you read the last line of that the stings the steiners the taylors the roots the austins will not stay around none of them did with the exception of sting and you know again and we're going to get further down this to really talk about how long this actually lasted i think a lot of it when you start compounding a lot of this together for Bill Watts, a lot of it was shock value. I think it was come in shock people in his mind, weed out the quote unquote bad apples and then set the tone for the next evolution of the company. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, did it backfire in his face. Just a little, I did a little bit of math. Well, and you're hundred percent right. By the way, I agree with everything you said. Did a little math. Terry Taylor, in this example, was making $156,000 a year. Of mm -hmm. that, he paid $46,800 in taxes. Mm -hmm. Then minus $75,000 a year on the road. Mm -hmm. And that's what he took home to his family. Yeah. 25 so, grand. Yeah. 25, 30 grand. Which, you know, again, in... Early 90s, a lot of money. Yeah. But again, right, when you start looking at it from, hey, you're trying to hurt that so that I'm going to take home almost nothing, what, what's he going to do? Well, right? And, and you know, what you tell and what you say, you know, a lot of money, but that's a lot of nights on the road away yeah. from your family. I, Terry, I. I don't remember, but had, had a young family at the time. So, and I mean, we all know people who have been away during young family time. And, you know, not to speak at a term, but we all know people who do that or have done yeah. that in the past. And, and that has a price to pay as well. And one and of the biggest, one of the biggest mistold, mistold stories in wrestling is that Kevin Nash and Scott Hall are responsible for people getting guaranteed contracts. That's simply not true. 
Um, because again, you're in this era where WCW had performers who were getting guaranteed contracts. Now, guaranteed in this sense is a little different. But again, when you're trying to take guys who know at the end of the year, this is what my take home is going to be. And now you're putting them on these appearance per night. Don't know how much you're going to work. Like, again, it's no different than anybody else. If someone came to me at work tomorrow and said, hey, we're going to put you on a paid for what you work thing with no set salary anymore. Like, yeah, I'd be worried. Because what's to say they're only going to work me one day a week? Well, and yeah, and that's the thing is that how many days am I going to work? We're going to pay you X amount per day, but we're not going to tell you how. Well, I'm, let's take it down to what exactly what it is. You and I are both very lucky where we work in a way that we don't have to worry about that. However, people who work in customer service, in retail, in restaurants, that's their daily life. Yeah. And we all, again, we all know people who do it and I have nothing but the utmost respect because I, I know myself where I am in my life. I couldn't work a job that maybe this week I'm going to get 25 hours and the next week I'm going to yeah. get 30. You know what I mean? Like I couldn't do that right now. Yeah. The only difference between what we're talking about and that is these guys, anytime they do their job, and I mean that in the go-to-work sense, they could end up with a broken neck for $300. Exactly. For $300. Like, these guys do not have the earning potential that somebody could like that you and I could work for 30 years in the profession that we're in (laughs) myself, notwithstanding chances are we're not going to have major health problems at the end of it. Yeah, exactly. Where every night that these guys go into the ring, one false move and they blow a knee out, they blow their back out, they break their neck. They like, to be, ask somebody to do that on the road for $300 a night is criminal in my in my idea. Yeah. Like so a lot, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well I was just going to say so naturally in those situations you know the performers start to rebel and of course Watts well he's not happy because now he sees people are talking, speaking out against his rules. So Watts was furious about the article. He mentioned it during a backstage meeting on August 16th with the wrestlers before television taping at the Omni. He asked if anyone had a problem and told them uh, if there, he wanted to know if anyone had a issue with morale. Surprisingly, Nikita Koloff was the one wrestler who spoke up and he made reference specifically to having a problem with the rule about having to stay at the building until the main event ends, regardless of where your position was on the card. Ironically enough, for Koloff to bring this up, he was still pretty high on the card at this point. Thus, he was in the building pretty late anyway, and not really getting an opportunity to take some of those late-night flights home. 
So obviously he was speaking up on behalf of some of the uh, lesser talent, let's put it that way, um, who were, again, missing the occasional chances to catch a late flight home and spend an extra night every now and then with their families. Watts responded, since he since he only heard this from one source and don't... Uh, wait, now. Watts had responded um, that, suffice to say, um, most of the guys were left with a cold feeling with something along the lines of, this business isn't conductive to family life, conducive to family life for those of us who can read. I mean, I get, I get that, but that's again, pretty ridiculous thing to say. Well, of all the research I did doing this stuff, that was the quote that really angered me the most. Yeah. Because this is somebody Cool. Oh, well, it's not really conducive to family life, but you know what else isn't conducive to family life? Being on the road and having to pop pills and drink booze every night to work your way through it. So if you can get home an extra, an extra night, maybe that helps take some of the edge off. Keeps your guys a little bit happier. But And we've all worked for people who have been like this. They don't care what your personal life is. You don't have a personal life. No. You have a work life. Yeah. And that's all that matters. I think um, that, it, it's, a, it's, it's a big thing, right? Because again, you know, in 2022, work-life balance is a huge thing, you know, especially in the corporate world. But like, again, in this situation, like if you're a veteran sitting in the locker room hearing, you know, Bill Watts say, well, wrestling isn't conducive to having a family life. No, duh. Like, we know that. But that doesn't mean you need to make it additionally difficult to spend time at home. If I'm jerking the curtain and I've done my job, let me go home. It's not a difficult concept, in my opinion. I I think it was Mick Foley who told the story in his book because well, he was in WCW at this time and there was a point where everybody who wasn't in the main event, they followed the rule to the letter. They, they did not leave the arena, but they were all in their cars, had everything packed, cars were started, and as soon as the one, two, three was hit in the main event, they were coattails in the watch shop. And away they were gone. Yep. So now we talked about the money a little bit earlier. Turns out that the people that were on these guarantee or sorry, not the guarantee contracts, but the nightly contracts, wrestlers, there's withholding on this. So if you're making a thousand dollars a night, you're only making 750 taking home. If you're making 500, you're only taking home 350, and if you're making 350, you're only taking home 250. The remainder will be kept in escrow and released every four months in lieu of possible fines, making sure the wrestlers do jobs, because if you don't do it, you will forfeit your money in escrow. Don't miss shows and don't walk out in the middle of a program. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like an employee and not an independent contractor. I don't know about you, but that sounds an awful lot like uh, 
of varying levels of labor law violations. Um, Because again, the, like you work, you get paid, you know, again, these guys are the, the independent contract status of these employees allows them to negotiate these ridiculous terms. But if you work as a thousand dollars a night, you should be paid a thousand dollars a night, not getting paid seven fifty and having your two hundred and fifty dollars put into escrow for you to make sure that you do jobs and don't get fines and don't miss shows. Like absolutely ridiculous. Again, Bill Watts has no idea how to run a wrestling company, and this proves it one hundred percent. Can I be the devil's advocate on this one? Sure. This is the exact same thing that happens in the NHL. Yes and no. That money, you you get X amount of dollars, but yes. off every paycheck, Y amount of dollars is held back and held in escrow because they have to be, there has to be 50-50 between the owners and the players. Right. If it doesn't meet the 50-50, then... The money that's in escrow goes back to the owners and the money, if they do hit 50-50, then it gets returned to the players. The difference there, though, is that applies equally to everybody, right? This is a, like, again, you know, the I, I, I'm not saying it's good yeah, because the escrow system in the NHL is ridiculous. Um, and, and But it applies evenly percentage-wise to everybody. Percentage-wise, okay. Right. Like, you know, obviously someone making 10 million and someone making a million, it, it affects them differently. But ratio wise, it affects everybody the same. This system, while it affects everybody the same with the fines and doing jobs and stuff, that opens the door to favoritism and other potential harmful things that could happen to somebody's escrow money. You got exactly where I wanted you to go. Because our next little story is the Brian Pillman story. And it's one of my favorite stories I've ever heard in professional wrestling. Brian Pillman signed a two-year contract with Kip Kip Fry. Fry was the vice president of WCW before Bill Watts. He was a major proponent of the light heavyweight division. He had, uh, Pillman had just come off a series of matches with Jushin Liger that had been the best series of matches in North America since 1989. Future matches between these two only promised to get better. Pillman's prospect looked bright. He seemed to be the clear choice to be the flagship of the light heavyweight division, quite possibly for years to come. His series with Liger was hot even with both his faces. Liger was basically an unknown to the casual audience, and with no angle supporting it, presumably would have been even hotter when a storyline was added perhaps with Pillman as a heel, and Liger received exposure to the casual audience. Throw in a few other talents into the mix, the possibilities for Pillman were seemingly endless. The chances for his programs getting stale for a long time, based on the quality of his own work, combined with the talents of Liger and others, were minimal. It could be back and forth with matches not only in the U.S., but in Japan as well, with the two trading a truly internationally defended belt back and forth with each becoming stars in the other's country and building a legitimate international feud in which angles and storylines could be shared and peak interest in two promotions simultaneously. 
another new dimension for the business. Pillman's contract called for roughly $425,000 in base pay over the two years, an estimated $200,000 and $225,000, plus a series of incentive bonuses, depending upon him being put in main events on major shows that could net him in the range of thirty-five dollars to $70,000 more each year. Fry saw Pillman as a major player for the future, the focal point of a new division and the new dimension, and based on his work against Liger, a proven commodity who was still a few years away from hitting his prime in this business. Pillman had an option if Fry didn't make him what he considered a fair offer. Titan Sports uh, was interested. The contract agreed upon more was more than good enough for him to give up that option for two years. Instead of the result of the new contract being what both Pillman and Fry had figured, with the company having such a strong financial commitment to Pillman for two years that it would be best to put him in a position to warrant that money. When Watts came in, the deal worked in reverse. Pillman quickly lost the title and started doing one television job after another, no doubt to weaken his bargaining position and perhaps to take down his ego before the move would be made. He was losing most of his matches at the arenas, often in the opener against the likes of Greg Valentine. And to make matters worse, the Chicago opener went national on WGN. It actually bordered on comical how his career fortunes reverted in such a short time for reasons that were seemingly illogical to all but a few. Quite frankly, he was the highest paid opening match loser in the history of the business. He had a chance to become the first person to be both a jobber in win match of the year during the same year. A heel turn came at the Clash of Champions with nothing of a storyline backing up, no long-term thoughts, planning attached to it, and making no sense whatsoever. Uh, ironically enough, it was probably still worked. He had potential to be a good heel. The position uh, the company lacked depth in, a good performer with that turn, it somehow erased the stigma of all the TV jobs. So the first part of that sounds great for Pillman. The second part of that, not so much. Watts yeah. Asked- <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, right? So this is where the guaranteed contracts could work against you. Um, you know, obviously they were trying to, Bill Watts wanted to destroy any value that Brian Pillman had regardless of what money he was making. Um, Yeah. Pillman was asked when he got in to talk to Watts, he was asked to give up all of his incentive bonuses. Ironically, the guy who publicly was so against guaranteed income because he felt it ruined wrestlers incentives was going after the part of the contract that built the incentive. But to Watts, the contract was simply too large. There's definitely a valid defense for Watts' thoughts in regard to the contract, although I'm not sure there is a defense for the position he put Pillman in. Pillman's contract called for him to earn incentives based on his push. If he isn't pushed, there's less incentives to pay, and someone else with no incentives in their contract can be put into the same spot, and it would, in the simplest of terms, cost the company less money. For a relatively small amount of money difference one way or the other, it would actually cost the company more money. The decision was made not to put the best player at the position. They still had to pay Pillman's base whether they pushed him or not. They only saved on the incentives. 
if they put someone else in that spot Pillman would have had and they work on a per night deal, it would have actually cost the company more. If there had been somebody better for the spot, then Pillman hardly deserves preferential treatment because the company signed him to a good contract. If there's somebody equal, saving money is a legitimate defense for the spot, but there's no justification for the for the burial. So what happens? Pillman goes into the office with Watts and they fight out a contract, but Pillman wasn't the only one that was like that. Rick Rude was like that as well. Guaranteed money contract expires in 95, was reportedly given a proposal by Watts that he'd give him a large cash payment now, uh, uh, far less money than Rude would earn on his current deal, even throwing in $1,000 per night on the new deal he'd sign. Plus, he'd be signing away his financial insurance in case of a major injury. That is called foreshadowing, my uh, my friends. If Rude would sign away his current contract and instead go on a per night deal uh, listed as a thousand per night, but reportedly with no guarantee of the number of dates. Uh, it should also be noted that reportedly new deals would include a clause that the wrestlers be asked to relocate their home base. In other words, they can be sent to another territory provided the territory picks up the thousand dollars or whatever per night deal. On the surface, doesn't sound so bad, but the worst case scenario could see someone transferred to Puerto Rico. <laughs> On Friday night in Chicago, Brad Armstrong defeated Brian Pillman with a Russian leg sweep, one, two, three. The rest of the weekend, the same story. Bill Watts on Monday said all problems between him and Brian Pillman were settled at a meeting the previous day at the Omni. No details were given, although both sides apparently came to a compromise. Watts indicated Pillman wouldn't be buried. Pillman was put over Brad Armstrong clean at television Monday night. Just, oh. So now you start to see, so Brian, so here's the thing. And this, this is sort of, topical with some things that are going on in the world right now <laughs> but i will i will explain when you have somebody who comes in and puts a tyrannical rule in place that is morale crushing productivity crushing it's always the first guy across the wall somebody at some point eventually steps up and puts the rest of the group on his back. That guy was Brian Pillman. Usually, the first guy across the wall doesn't make it. You could argue whether or not this left a black mark on Brian Pillman's career. I would say it probably did not. But, you know, he was buried for all this time. It probably didn't help. But eventually, Pillman got over the wall, got the compromise he wanted, and then you're going to start seeing the unraveling of what Bill Watts tried to put in place. I think all of that was triggered by Brian Pillman basically saying, I'm not going to put up with your crap, and you're going to treat me fairly, and we're going to work this out, or we're not. Brian Pillman has said, uh, had said uh, to various people, and it's been retold, that no matter what, if he wanted to keep beating me, I'll be the highest paid jobber in wrestling history. Yeah. 
I think so. But I also think, you know, behind the scenes, I don't, I don't, it's easy to say that out loud. It's another thing to believe it, you know, behind the scenes, right? I think deep down inside, Brian Pillman wanted to be the best wrestler in the world. And he wasn't going to get to that point getting jobbed out every night. Because eventually that contract is going to end. And you're going to need a new one. And you start to see your earning power disappearing pretty quickly. But you know what? He stuck up for himself. Made it work. Um, you know, the, the other thing that happened right after this is that the top rope ban goes away. So quickly overturning another Bill Watts thing. So yeah, you're going to start seeing now as we go through the rest of this, the run back of what Bill Watts was trying to do. Um, there is a, a new contract structure that Watts has set a thousand dollar per night wrestler who gives notice during his two month window at the end of the contract period will not get bumped down to $350 per night. That was something that could happen is that if you gave your notice and you were a thousand dollar guy, you would be bumped down to $350 per night. That is not going to happen anymore. According to Watts, there was also a relocation clause that it's supposed to be because once the new contracts are into effect, all wrestlers have to be based in Atlanta or provide for their own transportation into Atlanta. The wrestlers who live in Charlotte or elsewhere will have to pay for their transportation to Atlanta for all road trips or shows in the Atlanta area and transportation home as all flights will be to and from Atlanta. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so Watts at this point says they plan on running 214 house shows in 1993, 60 television tapings, four clashes, four pay-per-views, which means plans are to increase, not decrease the number of house shows, which you could imagine would not go over well. Now, again, he would position it as more house shows, more chances to work. So if you're a guy on a, you know, those per night deals, hey, that's going to work out for you. Uh, he confirmed all new contracts by the time period in which the company, but not the wrestler, has the option to terminate the contract provided the company gives the wrestler 30 days notice in writing. Wrestlers who sign multi-year deals, keeping in mind that this only applies to wrestlers who sign new deals from this point forward and not existing deals, will come up for renewal every four months, while those on a yearly contract will come up every three months. Watts admits this will give wrestlers no security, but claim there's no security factor in any sports. If you want security, go work at the bank. You have a choice. You can make big money or you can have security. There's never been a time in America where you can get both quoted Bill Watts. <laughs> well, now icing on the cake. Watts also confirmed that they were doing away with medical coverage and contracts that call for paying wrestlers for dates they miss due to work-related injuries. As if you could be any more against the performers and their well-being and their financial well-being. Uh, he defended it by saying wrestlers are independent contractors. 
and said that the company's comp- worksman's compensation premium was more than 400k that year. Quote, we're doing away with it. If they want insurance, they make enough money, they can get their own. End quote. Just, like, but okay, they're independent contractors when you don't want to give the medical coverage or paying for days off for injury suffered in the ring. But they're employees when you want to move them all to Atlanta to make the travel easier. Yeah, and cheap. exactly. Uh, Watts also commented on the financial withholding, which we talked about earlier. His explanation is that he considers the $750, for example, to be the base pay and the remaining $250 as an incentive bonus. You remember they were uh, withholding that in escrow for uh, four months and only paying it out after removing fines and any other monies that were levied for perhaps missing a show and whatnot and so on and so forth. Watts said the company has had too many problems with the wrestlers walking out not doing jobs, no showing or whatever in the past. I don't hate this, but like in reality, I don't think that money would have really curbed what they were thinking it was going to curb. I think, again, hard to say. I mean, you know, it's 30 years ago, but like to say, well, I I see it as a base pay and then a bonus. No, you get paid a thousand dollars a night to wrestle. <laughs> it's not well. If, these are guys if, if on you contracts. Wanted, if you wanted it to be seven fifty and two hundred, then just make it seven fifty and two fifty, right? Like it, it's uh, that's an old school wrestling promoter thing. Um, I've seen it a few times where guys like they will come in for X amount of dollars, and the promoter, if they've had a good match or or helped, you know, on the independent scene, help put the ring up, take the ring down, you know, or, or do some training or, or whatever will bonus somebody. But I like to see it on somebody that's based like you're a thousand dollars a night as an independent contractor. I expect to get paid a thousand dollars a night because I have to pay my own insurance, pay my own taxes, you know, pay everything. Like it would be under, you know, like if, if I were to do it, it would be under Dead Puppet Society Productions. You know, if I were to be in the wrestling business, I would get paid to my, I would be an LLC. Like yeah. these guys aren't getting checks made yeah. out in their name. So make it a business and, and the whole deal. But I would expect to get paid the $1,000. You don't get to hold anything back because I am not your employee. Well, here's the thing. Speaking of not holding back, anytime there's a beginning of an end or an end of a beginning in wrestling, usually there is one man that is involved somewhere in there. And in this case, it holds true. The Nature Boy Ric Flair will be returning to World Championship Wrestling in mid-February. Now, again, at this point, you got to remember, Flair Zipoo is up in New York with WWF coming up and run as the world champion working with uh, Macho Man. Um, no contract has been signed just yet, but Flair did receive a release from his WWF contract that expires in September, which would allow him to join WCW after February 15th, 
meaning his most likely debut date would be the Super Brawl pay-per-view show in Asheville, North Carolina. Flair is finishing up his scheduled matches against Bret the Hitman Hart and Mr. Perfect, with his last date expected to be around February 8th after the completion of WWF's European tour. His final WWF appearances in the U.S. will be on the final weekend of January, including a the 129 Somalia benefit at MSG against Mr. Perfect. Flair is also is expected to sign a multi-year contract with WCW, which includes an undisclosed guaranteed annual salary said to be well above the $1,000 per night maximum Bill Watts had originally stated would be the most he would pay any wrestler. And also minus the four-month contract review period intervals, which Watts talked about as guidelines for all wrestlers on new contracts. So, hey, guys and girls, remember, it doesn't matter what your work tells you that you get paid and what the rules are. If you're the Nature Boy Ric Flair, you just do whatever the hell you want. And again, at this point, Flair had gone to WWF and realized the grass was not greener on the other side. Right? Well, I mean, he, he had his run. Yep. And he won his world titles and he worked with Macho Man and and did the Razor Ramon team up thing and uh, reading Rick's book and other things, he and Vince had had a handshake deal saying, if you were never going to leave, if you were ever not going to use me on top, release me. And at that point, Vince was trying to get into more of a youth movement. I think we were getting close to the new generation thing. So he wasn't going to be on top anymore. Vince held up his side of the bargain and gave him his release. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, again, you're really starting to get to this point where, you know, Vince is looking to do something different. Um, I mean, to say that, right. Um, you know, in, in September of 92, Flair's the champ still. He's going to drop it to Hart on a house show. Now, again, we know there were injury circumstances around that with um, Flair having, uh, you know, vertigo and a bunch of crazy stuff happening. But the intention was always for him to drop it to Hart. And then we know the youth movement doesn't last because all of a sudden, boom, you know, WrestleMania 9 happens. I don't want to talk about that crap again. But WrestleMania 9 happens. And we're back to Hogan and, you know, we go Hogan and Yoko for a little bit and blah, 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 blah. And then we finally circle back to some of this youth movement. But I just think, yeah, it's the environment wasn't going to be conducive to flair. And I think again, at this point, flair is probably one of the few guys you're going to break all your rules for because he's freaking Ric Flair. Right. Yeah. Like he he Ric Flair is NWA slash WCW. The big gold belt. Again, you anybody who's been a wrestling fan, you say who's the first guy you think of when you think of big gold belt? It's Ric Flair. It, it, it's 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 Ric Flair every damn time. If you say Triple H, I'm gonna pause the recording right now. I'm gonna get in my truck and I'm gonna come over there and I'm gonna slap you. Seriously. What I'm just, I'm just saying there are people out there who would say, Oh, big gold belt is triple H, but no, <laughs> you say big gold belt and you think Ric Flair. And again, yes. at this, at this point, WCW has very little for star power. 
Um, Sting is not the flag bearer that they wanted him to be and needed him to be. He was good, but not great. He wasn't because he didn't have a good heel to work with. So, yeah, for as hardline as Bill Watts was, I mean, again, no brainer, right? No brain that you were going to pay Ric Flair. Um, yeah, just crazy. So earlier on when we were doing our double or nothing uh, recap, you talked about Eric Bischoff. And if there are two reasons this show would ever go viral, it would be because we talked crap about Eric Bischoff or mm. we talked about Jim Cornette. Mm. So speaking of Cornette, Jim Cornette returned to WCW on a taping on January 25th because Bill Watts and Jim Cornette, who was running Smoky Mountain at the time, came to a tour or a a talent exchange deal. And they decided we're going to exchange talent and you come in for Super Brawl and everything that you were going to do. They had a handshake deal. A few days before Cornette shows up on WCW, Watts calls him and says, I think I'm going to be out of here by the time this finishes up. Let me put our deal on paper. And that's the only reason Cornette got paid for this. I think it was about $25,000 for WCW and Smoky Mountain. So Cornette, Stan Lane, Tom Pritchard, and Bobby Eaton. Stan Lane and Tom Pritchard were the heavenly bodies at this time. They come in through the crowd at center stage knocking down a security railing, and Cornette went into a tirade about how the Rock and Roll Express stole the Smoky Mountain Tag Team titles, and he wanted to wrestle them right now. Bill Watts came out to a chorus of boos, and Cornette went into a five-minute WCW Bill Watts tirade. Apparently, the highlight was when Cornette said that Watts wasn't fit to run the company and should be cleaning the toilets out at CNN only because of a big crowd pop for the line on the look uh, on Watts's face. Although Watts was booed like crazy coming out, the boos turned to cheers when Cornette was poking Watts in the chest and Watts grabbed his hand and gave a line about how he didn't know where that finger had been. This leads to a Heavenly Bodies Rock and Roll Express match at Super Brawl. So, I mean, obviously Bill Watts is going to make it to Super Brawl, right? Nope. The expected well, major- maybe. Maybe. Uh, Let's no. find out. The expected major bloodletting at World Championship Wrestling took place in a meeting on February 2nd, resulting in a significant changing in the corporate corporate ladder. Thank you. Corporate hierarchy. I've spent way too much time in my apartment in the past few weeks. Listen, as a a corporate shill, um, (laughs) corporate hierarchy is one of those buzzwords we use all the time. Uh, I, on the other hand, uh, work for freedom, uh, including the loss of power for both Bill Watts and particularly Jim Ross. Uh, Bill Shaw and Bob Dew, who were put in charge of this company nearly one year ago from the now retired Jack Petrick, had taken a more hands-on approach in recent weeks rather than leaving much of the decision-making to Watts. They divided the company into three categories, a pay-per-view division headed by Sharon Sodello, a television division headed by a, or headed by an as yet unnamed individual who is expected to be named this week, and a wrestling product division headed by Watts, Sadello, and the television division head. 
whose title will be executive producer of WCW, who will have final say-so on all matters relating to their divisions, including the matches that air on television and pay-per-view shows. Since in reality, television is the most important facet of a wrestling company, the new executive producer may wind up being the most powerful front office employee. The executive producer apparently will be Keith Mitchell, David Crockett, Tony Schiavone, or some guy named Eric Bischoff. Uh, Speculation within the company over the weekend is that Mitchell or, or Bischoff had the best shot at the position. In addition, the largest booking committee in recorded history was put together to put together storylines and decide on who gets pushed. I wish Bill Watts had stuck around for this, if only for the stories that would have happened about him having to take orders from Sharon Sadello, who know, not many people know the name, but also Eric Bischoff. Yeah, it would have been great. It would have been just wonderful. But unfortunately, he did not stick around. <laughs> uh, Bill Watts resigned as vice president of wrestling operations on the morning of February 10th and in a meeting of WCW department heads of February 12th. It was announced that Ole Anderson would take over for Watts' position, and Eric Bischoff was named the executive producer of all WCW television. Uh, the aftermath of the announcement of the company restructuring on February 2nd and the resignation of Watts leaves WCW headed by Bill Shaw as president, Bob Dew as executive vice president, and the four department heads, Sidello, Bischoff, Anderson, and Rob Garner, who was in charge of syndication. Watts' resignation was largely expected by most in the company to be imminent after the restructuring was announced and his power was diluted because we all know, as a dictator, you cannot do anything if you do not have the power. The official company statement was Turner Broadcasting does not by policy comment on personnel matters. Classic. The resignation came uh, just as at least four different media sources were working on a story based on statements made by Watts more than 18 months ago that were along the lines of statements made by Marge Schott, the Cincinnati Reds' infamous baseball owner. Which so become- since since you are our baseball expert, because I, I really don't know much about baseball, who, if you had to do it in like 25 words or less, would how would you describe Marge Schott? Would you like me to say it in a way that might not may not cause our viewers to have a meltdown? Marge um, shot. Marge shot was the Donald Trump of baseball. Oh. Okay. Um, shot had become front page news in recent weeks uh, and resulted in a one year suspension from baseball. Um, comments about her statements and that her suspension was just a slap on the wrist from Hank Aaron, who at the time, and some people still believe is the all time home run record holder. And the coincidence of Aaron who had no idea at the time about statements Watts made, being involved with WCW Starcade pay-per-view on February 20th at the Omni while the shot controversy was going on. Context here from the baseball guy. Hank Aaron, again, at this point, all-time home run king in baseball, was a Brave. So Milwaukee Braves and then became the Atlanta Braves. Atlanta Braves, at this point, owned by Ted Turner. So you see the connection between WCW and Hank Aaron, right? That's how Hank Aaron ends up on WCW TV. He was probably doing a favor to Ted Turner. He would do a lot of appearances for Ted Turner over the years. Um, Again, um, Marge shot, let's just say, and we're not going to share 
any of the specific comments that were made by any of, of these two idiots. Um, let's just say they were racially motivated, uh, not in a good way. Uh, no. And, and again, just the kind of thing. I mean, well, we'll get into this. We'll give you some general examples. The interview yeah, question. What? Oh, what, what, you want to go ahead? I, I will, though. I, I was, I was going to read it, but I can read it if you'd like. Yeah, go ahead. The interview in question was by Watts in the Pro Wrestling Torch Summer 1991 Annual. In addition, an interview published in the past few months by Watts in the Wrestling World Examiner newsletter contained comments by Bill Watts regarding Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany that were eerily similar to remarks shot made and was heavily criticized for just one day after Watts' resignation on Primetime Live. An interview was the interview was faxed to Aaron on February 9th by Torch columnist and Pittsburgh Post Gazette sports writer and future Monday Nitro host Mark Madden, who asked Aaron for his comments on the interview. Aaron took the interview to TBS President Terry McGurk, and the announcement was made of Watts' resignation early the next morning. Those close to Watts say the decision to leave was his. I don't know if I believe that. That might nope. be one of those. That might be one of those. You can quit or you're going to get fired. But either way, you're leaving. Yeah. Uh, the stories which would have broken most likely towards the later stages of the week had Watts not resigned would have proven to be a major embarrassment for Turner Broadcasting. It would have shown that Turner, who was one of the owners sitting on the board to decide Shot's fate, had hired someone to run one of his companies after someone had published statements that would be classified as even more offensive. So that's uh, it. So that's it, right? Well, just I, I do want to give kind of the other side in listening to Watts's interview. He does not deny making the statements. What he does say is that those statements were cleared during the interview process when he was hired for this job. How times change. How times change. Again, the last point of that paragraph is very telling because Ted Turner would have had a hand in Marge shot being banned from baseball. Uh, because again, you know, the, the, the Marge shot thing rocked baseball at a time where baseball was already undergoing tumultuous times. It um, would be fair to say, because I, I, you know, I'm, I facetiously say that I'm not a baseball guy and I'm not a huge baseball guy, but I'm a news guy. And I do remember the merge shot stuff. You know, to say that those comments were inflammatory, if statements like that were made by anybody in any power in baseball today or any time in the past five to seven years, there would be baseball fields burning in America. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I mean, yeah, it's. Uh, so funny. that's it for what? So listen, so listen, I, I do want to give one other bit of context, just because, okay. again, six degrees here. Yes. The just because simil the similarities between shot and Watts, notwithstanding, this was not 
Shot's first, I mean, run-in with wrestling. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. In 1989, Randy Savage was invited into the Reds broadcast booth by Marty Brenneman, the broadcaster of the Reds at the time. He was in the Macho King gimmick at this point. And Marge Schott sent a message through her nephew to the broadcast booth that she wanted Savage off the air immediately, which led to a confrontation between Brenneman and Schott after the game. Really? I had seen pictures of a macho man in like in the broadcast booth. Cause I don't think that's the last time he did that. I think he was a, I don't want to say a regular guest, but he was there in now again, yeah. might've happened after shots yeah. removal, but yeah. Randy Savage was, I think he was a Cardinals draft pick. Yeah, I, I believe because right. he was a catcher uh, and uh, he didn't make the team went uh, a story according to his brother Lanny that he didn't make the team uh, in Major League Baseball went out to one of the trees in the backyard broke every one of his bats and never picked another one up yeah well I mean that's it for Bill Watts right you know his career um, is over um, and- um, hand, hand up. no no Wait. as a matter of fact he's uh, done right? no he's done right no he uh, he's outro? back and- we'll, go, we'll go to the outro no, we have. Uh, oh, he's got. Okay. He's got one more stop. Don't worry. Okay. Doesn't okay. Take, okay. Don't take long. Okay. Um, have you ever heard of Vince McMahon? Yes, I have. Well, he announced at a meeting of all WWF wrestlers prior to the In Your House pay per view show in Saginaw, Michigan, that Bill Watts would be taking a larger share of responsibility for the creative end of wrestling. The meeting, described as anti WCW oriented. Sam McMahon talked mainly about the Monday night head-to-head situation, telling the wrestlers that WWF isn't interested in running live shows weekly and that this season they would adopt a Melrose Place attitude toward the taped Raw segments by teasing the end of each show's highlights in the or for next week's episode. So basically having the tapings and running it like Watts ran Mid-South where you would always end on a cliffhanger and move, you know, use shots from the next week to promote. Classic. Oh, Classic yeah. WWF, you're never done in wrestling. Yeah, both McMahon and Watts spoke at the meeting with McMahon describing the new situation as he would be spending more time in his role as corporate executive and that Watts would take over many of his duties when it came to creative aspects of the television arena and pay-per-view shows. McMahon said that he would still work with Watts on these aspects, but, and remember this line, he wouldn't overrule Watts. In addition to being in charge of finishes on television arena and pay-per-view, Watts will attend more arena events, and he has already started evaluating wrestlers' performances talking and talking to them about it after their matches, although Watts gained a horrible reputation uh, after his tenure with WCW a few years ago up to this point. There has been no gis- discontent among WWF wrestlers, at least to any major degree, about Watts since he arrived. I mean, just it's just great. It's great stuff. You know, it's yeah. uh, it's um, yeah. I mean, 
So and now remember, Vince has said he is not going to overrule Watts. Oh, so that worked out perfectly, I assume. I, in the space of one tumultuous week, the, the WWF lost the man who the wrestlers had been told less than three weeks earlier was in full control of the creative aspects of the operation and two of its three biggest stars due to injury. Bill Watts officially quit the WWF on October 13th after an apparent disagreement with Vince McMahon over what being in charge constituted. <laughs> Uh, McMahon had announced at a team meeting that Watts would be in control and he wouldn't overrule him. This took only a few weeks before Watts, apparently taking these words seriously, was overruled and feeling he wouldn't have the authority he expected quitting the company after a week filled with rumors about the frying, frying relationship between the 56-year-old Watts and McMahon. Rumors started in the midweek that Watts had left the company after a blow-up with McMahon, which were immediately denied within the WWF. Apparently earlier in the week, perhaps on Tuesday, since that's the day company does voiceovers for syndication, there was a blow-up involving Watts and other company employees not involving McMahon, who was busy doing television announcing voiceovers for syndication over his office not being ready. The rumors uh, quickly uh, spread both Internet of Wrestling that Waltz was gone or according to those in the situation that Watts had quit, but was quickly talked out of it. And others said it was simply a disagreement not involving McMahon in any way. Either way, Watts still working on Wednesday and Thursday before officially quitting on Friday after a meeting with McMahon. Among the wrestlers, the belief was quitting over the two having a disagreement over the future creative end of the company regarding WrestleMania 12 and after that show. Apparently, apparently uh, the issue was... Watts had scripted out a raw talking how he had done it before, where we talked about they had used previous, you know, the previous week to build to the next week and things of that nature. And what uh, Vince did as soon as he saw the show is he rearranged a bunch of segments, which then made absolutely no sense and led Bill Watts to use one of the lines he is most famous for that you can say in front of family. There is only room for one Titan in Titan Towers. I wonder if Watts would have had the chance to stick around through WrestleMania 12 if he would have booked the Ultimate Warrior's return against Triple H um, differently. <laughs> just a thought, just a thought that I, because I mean, WrestleMania 12 was pretty damn good. I don't know if Watts would have brought, would have been in favor of, Br Watts has said that he would have fired British Bulldog and Shawn Michaels like that because they broke one of Bill Watts' major rules. If you get into a fight with the fans and you lose, you get fired. Mm. Bill Watts, man. <laughs> That's, I don't really know what else to say. Uh, he's also to blame or thank for the wild card match at Survivor Series that year. Apparently that was his idea. Where we had uh, Shawn Michaels, Sid, Ahmed Johnson... Uh, against, I forget who else was in that match, but it was a match where it had a bunch of faces and a bunch of heels all intermingled together. You know, will they get along kind of deal? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, that was Watts' idea. That's why you've never, you've never seen it again. It was gooder. Yeah. So that wraps up Bill Watts. Bill Watts is, is still with us. Uh, which, you know, in 
my, in my opinion, which I am allowed to have, proves that the, the good die young and pricks live forever. Um, but uh, what do you think about Bill Watts, WWF, and WCW? What a disaster. I mean, there's no real other way to put it. It was an unmitigated, complete, total disaster. Um, there was nothing good that came out of it. You had a guy that came in and tried to rule with an iron fist and a whole bunch of rules, and it completely backfired in his face. And I think it set the company back. Um, cause again, WCW had some pretty good momentum going into the early nineties and, you know, um, look at what they did after he was gone, not saying it couldn't have happened under Bill Watts's leadership, but you know, he's, he gets the boot. We end up with the creation of Monday Nitro, uh, you know, and, and the Monday night wars. And I don't think that would have happened with Bill Watts at the helm. I really don't. WCW uh, was very close to being shut down after Bill Watts. Could you imagine, uh, uh, like what the end, like Bill Watts and having the NWO, like, come on. No, Bill, it, it, Bill, 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 Watts, Bill Watts had a early eighties mentality in the early nineties. The wrestling landscape had changed. It was not territory based anymore. You were down to two promotions fighting for national supremacy, one of which was out to a gigantic head start. Um, and again, you know, there were a lot of signs, a lot of writing on the wall. The Pillman thing, Flair coming back was the beginning of the end. Uh, because again, it, 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 he broke all of the rules to get Flair to come back, which probably wasn't a good thing. But when you are the rules guy, doesn't work favorably in your corner. Uh, it was a disaster. Bill Watts was horrible for wrestling. He's a horrible human being. Uh, and like you said, he's a prick. Um, and you know what? It's, it's interesting to cover because, not because I like to spend, you know, an hour and a half putting somebody down, but it just shows you how different the companies were because you had one company was run by people that all they knew was wrestling. And the other company is now being run by a guy that all he knows is baseball and entertainment. Ted Turner didn't know wrestling. All he knew was that, that famous line, right? That, Wrestling's been a staple on Saturday nights at 6.05 on my network. That's all he knew of wrestling was that it was on Saturday nights at 6.05. Yeah, he built TBS on the Andy Griffith show and pro wrestling. And he, and again, Vince McMahon built a company on pro wrestling. He didn't build it on TV and then go out and acquire a wrestling program. So, Bill, again, the reason why Bill Watts lasted in WWF for all, all of two weeks is because Bill Watts is not a wrestling guy. He's a micromanager who knew nothing about the product. And you know what? He ultimately was horrible for the performers, horrible for the company, and horrible for the wrestling industry completely. So I'm going to give you one of my famous as-or questions. We talk about Bill Watts being out of touch in 1992-93. Who is more out of touch, 
do you believe on the wrestling side? We're not going to talk about the entertainment side because we've said for a long time that WWE is not a wrestling company. It's an entertainment company. Mm-hmm. Who's more out of touch? Bill Watts in 92, 93 or Vince McMahon in 2022? See, it's apples and oranges. Okay, so if I remove the 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 racist stuff from it, yes, just wrestling. Um, okay, so man, <laughs> it's tough. I'm going to say Vince McMahon, and I'm going to be, I'm going to try to defend it. I think it's Vince McMahon. Only because wrestling is way more accessible now than it was in the early 90s. Um, you could find wrestling on YouTube. You could find wrestling clips on Twitter. You could find wrestling on Twitch. You could find wrestling literally everywhere. They have their own online network dedicated to WWE. Wrestling is everywhere. It's never been easier to consume wrestling content. So I think being in tune with the, the the wrestling community and what the fans want is has never ever been more important i think bill watts while bill watts was out of touch in the early 90s wcw is still a southern wrestling promotion for lack of a better way to look at it and i think the impact of his again look at what wcw went on to become after bill watts Right, they went on to become for a short period of time the number one wrestling company in the world. So, not saying WWE is going down the toilet, but I just think, again, it's it's so it's two completely different landscapes. I think Bill Watts was completely out of touch with the performers. I think Vince McMahon is completely out of touch with the viewers. So it's again, it's very apples and oranges. But given the landscape that we currently live in, I worry, not worry, but how much is Vince leaving on the table by not listening to the people who ingest his product? I don't know. You can make a case for either or, I guess. Yeah, no, and I I think you, like, I like the way you said it where Bill Watts was out of touch with the performers while Vince McMahon is out of touch with the fans. And when we're, that's, it is apples and oranges. It still shows that uh, both are out of touch. I will say the one good thing that came out of Bill Watts's reign of terror in WCW is a YouTube video of Kevin Nash talking about dealing with Bill Watts in WCW and then dealing with Bill Watts in WWF when he is in two different spots on the pecking order. Nash being Vinny Vegas in WCW and being on the lower end of the card and then being the champion or on the high end of the card in WWF and how that kind of changed for Nash and Watts's relationship. And he tells an amazing story about having a 25-second cage match with Yokozuna that Bill Watts booked. But that's your homework to watch for the next couple of weeks. That's what we think. 
What do you think? Why don't you let us know on our socials? You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash ringside rewind. You can also check us out on our website, ringsiderewind.com. And on Twitter, the show is at ringside rewind. He is at Snaggle J and I am at CD Lord. Thank you, as always, for listening to this episode of Ringside Rewind. Again, if you're listening on ringsiderewind.com or in your podcast app of choice on Android or iOS, we appreciate the ever-loving heck out of you. Uh, Thank you for going down this journey as we talked about Double or Nothing and we talked about Cowboy Bill Watts. We will be back in the future a couple weeks' time with a brand-new episode, so make sure you are subscribed to the feeds or you've got that handy-dandy bookmark over at ringsiderewind.com. And until next time, be kind and rewind. And don't be like Bill Watts.